Usury is a complex subject and one that we tend to avoid thinking about as modern Christians. Many people mock the fact that the church prohibits usury, but behind the teaching were some very important insights, even if they are difficult to now apply in the world of modern commerce. When lending money to someone at interest, assuming that you have a good interest rate locked in, you actually benefit the longer that the loan remains unpaid, so long as they don't die without assets or declare bankruptcy. You are happy to let them fail to pay you so long as the interest keeps growing. Which is why credit card companies are very happy to let cardholders make very small monthly payments on large balances, just enough to show that they are still solvent while letting the balance run up at very high interest rates. As a law student, I had to spend a lot of my first year in law school learning about the wonderfully complex field of contract law. In the law of contracts, which developed in the Middle Ages when usury was still prohibited, there was and still is an important principle in our modern law that every contract has to be in good faith. A leading court has defined good faith as this. In every contract, there is an implied covenant that neither party shall do anything which will have the effect of destroying or injuring the right of the other party to receive the fruits of the contract, which means that in every contract, there is an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. What that means is that the contract has to be structured so that it is in the best interest of each party that the other side performs the contract as written. In other words, I can't make a contract with someone where I would be better off if they breached their side of the bargain, because that would give me a subtle incentive to find ways to trip them up. For example, let's say that I make a contract with someone to sell them my car for $10,000, which at this point would just be outright fraud on my part, but just... Let's make it an example. And the agreement is that the other person would meet me at high noon in the parking lot where they will give me the money and I will give them the keys and sign over the title to the car. Yet a clause in the contract says if they don't show up by exactly 12 noon, exactly 12 noon, they have to pay me $20,000 for the car and no backing out. That type of contractual clause, which is called an illegal penalty, violates good faith because there is no reason that I will be injured by the other person being minutes or even hours or even days late in making the payment that I should be entitled to double the contract price. The problem with this type of penalty clause is that it then gives me an incentive to perhaps engineer things so that the other side finds it difficult to show up on time and consummate the purchase. Maybe I arrange for someone to call them on the phone just before they're about to go out to meet me and talk their ear off to make them late. Or maybe I accidentally give them bad directions to the St. John's parking lot. Or I bribe a cop to pull them over on some pretext as they are making their way here. So the law never wants two parties to be in a contract to be in a position where one has some incentive to frustrate the other's performance. The essence of a good faith contract should always be that if we each do what we promise to do, we each profit from the mutual exchange. And that's not always present in many modern financial and commercial contracts, where high interest rates or punitive fees and charges are added for minor things 
like a late payment. But contracts are one thing. Covenants in the Bible are quite another. In the first reading from Genesis, God tells Noah and his sons, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? A contract is merely for the exchange of values. People enter into contracts in order to get something that they perceive as more valuable than what they are giving up. But a covenant establishes a kinship. In other words, a kind of family relationship. It brings two people or groups into communion with each other. Yes, it often imposes laws and obligations, but the aim of those laws and obligations is for the sake of the relationship. In a business relationship, there can be goodwill on both sides that goes beyond the specific obligations imposed by a contract. But the purpose of the relationship itself is so that each side can make a profit. In a covenant, each party becomes bound into a relationship that transcends any mere profit-seeking or petty exchange. That's why we refer to marriage and family as covenantal relationships. That's why the church says that it is forbidden for a couple to have a prenuptial agreement that contemplates what's going to happen if we get divorced. Because in a covenant, one does not even look to the possibility of the relationship breaking down. In the Old Testament, two people or groups would establish a covenant with each other by slaughtering an animal and dividing the carcass in two on the ground. Each party or their representative would ceremonially walk between the divided animal. Symbolically, what they were saying was, if I breach this covenant, let me be like this animal. In other words, dead and destroyed. There was no going back on a covenant. That's why the priest in the communion rite holds up the two halves of the large host after he has fractioned them, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Christ was sacrificed in the new covenant, the spotless Lamb. In a sense, as Christians, we are walking amidst Christ's torn body. Just like ancient people walked between a torn animal to symbolize their commitment to a covenant. In doing so, we recognize that there is no going back on this promise. There is no other way. Only through Christ's blood can we be redeemed. In a divine covenant, one between God and his people, the reality is that God himself gains nothing by his covenants. He does not make himself better by entering into a covenant with us. We do not profit him because he's God. He is everything that he needs. The covenant, instead, is for our sake. If we do not maintain the covenant, we have only death and destruction to await us. Not because God takes his revenge and punishes us, but because we have turned away from the light. We have turned away from the one thing that will benefit us. As St. Peter said in the second reading, Christ suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. In Genesis, his covenant with Noah is for the sake of Noah and his descendants. Everything that it imposes on Noah and his descendants is for their sake. 
That's true of all the covenants that God makes in the Old Testament, as well as the supreme covenant of Jesus in the New Testament. Any rule or law or aspect of our Christian lives that is imposed upon us, such as our Lenten observances of fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, are for our own good. They are not things that God gains from. They are aids that he gives us through the church so that we can maintain covenantal communion with him. We lose nothing, no freedom, no rights, nothing that is of any value by living in God's covenant. All that we lose is sin and slavery to sin. In this Lent, let's be conscious of the fact that everything that we suffer is for our own good. But be conscious of another reality. Just as God will never assert his own rights and prerogatives rather than our own good, in his covenant with us, then we too as Christians are called to make our relationships with others more covenantal. Now, obviously, I don't recommend that you call your neighbor outside to show him that you have torn up an animal so that each of you can convert your relationship into a covenant by walking through it. We don't necessarily announce to others that we are trying to live our relationships in a more covenantal way. But we can, from our side, regardless of what the other person might do, live our relationships in that way. Whether that's our relationship in the family, to a spouse or a parent or a child or a sibling, or even a relationship in the world to a friend, a coworker, a boss, an employee, or even a fellow parishioner. Live that relationship as a covenant. Don't count the cost. Don't just put it in terms of what I get out of it. Instead, see it as an opportunity for self-giving and self-sacrifice. See it as an opportunity to give and not to gain, just like God's covenant with us.